we will be returning to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 this morning. As you turn there, by way of announcement, we have a fellowship meal next Sunday. I know you had one on Thursday, but thanks be to God, we got another one coming up. Uh, we're thankful not only that we're thankful, but we know who to thank. So praise God for his good gifts of the holiday we celebrated, and praise God we have another fellowship meal coming up next Sunday. Please come prepared for that. Also another announcement is that the ladies are going to continue or begin another Luke study in January. So if you want to, if you're a lady, you can sign up for that. Uh, come January, there'll be information in the foyer or you can call the office to sign up as well. Uh, other uh, announcements will be found in your bulletin if you got one of those. In returning to 1 Peter chapter 5, we're coming toward the end of our study of this epistle. But you might remember when we began considering it that we first look at the life of Peter in a message that I titled, Peter, Rock-Headed to Rock-Steady. As you may remember, Peter's dad named him Simon, but Jesus renamed him Peter, but John the disciple called him Simon Peter because he couldn't figure out who this guy was. Peter was a man who was born ready for action. For him, it wasn't as much about direction as it was just going somewhere. For him, the time to act was now and the time to think was during. His life motto seemed to be follow first and figure it out later. Peter went from rock-headed to rock-steady, as we see from him going from a disciple to an apostle. He matured from youthful pride to Christ-like humility. So when Peter writes about those who are younger men being subject to the elders and everybody clothing themselves with humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, these were things that he knew about very personally. He knew what it was to be young and proud. He also knew by this time what it was to be humbled by God's own opposition. Peter was a man who heard from Jesus' own mouth not only the words, follow me, but also the words, get behind me, Satan. He also heard from Jesus' own mouth, on this rock I will build my church, but also you will deny me three times. Peter was a man of youthful strength, endurance, and zeal. These things were simultaneously strengths and weaknesses in his life. And he needed to have those weaknesses matured so that he could become the leader who would write First Peter. He couldn't continue to be the youthful man who followed his feelings rather than proper knowledge of God. He needed a Lord not only to redeem him, but disciple him so that he could disciple others. 
You could sum up Peter's early Christian walk with these two youthful characteristics. One, an under-reliance on Jesus, and two, an overestimation of his own ability. An under-reliance on Jesus and an overestimation of his own ability. But as you know, Peter grew in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and was commissioned by Jesus to tend and feed his lambs. Here in 1 Peter 5, Peter addresses lambs that are very much like himself only a few decades ago. Look at 1 Peter 5 with me as we read through verse 11. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ, you are the chief shepherd of your church. You are the head of the church who gives us our instruction and guidance. We pray that you would help us to receive that instruction and guidance through your word now as we gather as your body to hear from you that we might follow you, especially in your example of humility. Teach us from your word now. May we come humbly before it as we know that the one who is humble and contrite and surrendered to your word is the one that you look to. May we be that one. Amen. This is a text about humility. We learn many things about humility from these verses. Humility is subject or submissive to Jesus by being subject to God's appointed elders. Humility is also the clothing that all the Christians are to appear in as they lovingly serve one another. Humility is developed by the God who builds up his people by bringing trials down on them. Humility recognizes that trials are not some fluke accident or punishment for sin which Jesus failed to pay for, but they're ordained by God for our good. And those trials are not to make us anxious, but to remind us that we can trust God implicitly because we know who he is. It's a reminder that he cares for us, that there is a redeemer. Humility is also sobered by remembering that we have an ancient foe who is far more powerful than we are. But he's not more powerful than the one who made him. Humility also recognizes that 
I have the capacity to commit great sins and to be deceived if not for the grace of God. Humility also seeks to resist the devil and temptation while praying that Jesus would deliver you from evil. Humility is also something that grows in us when we're reminded of the suffering of the church universally, that our suffering isn't unique to us. Other Christians around the world share in the same kind of suffering as well. Humility is something that patiently submits to Jesus while also standing firm on Jesus. Humility is developed through suffering and by God's grace. Humility trusts God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He is the one who will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Humility bows to and believes in Jesus' dominion over all things forever and ever. Amen. As we look at verse 5 together, let's first consider these words, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Just as Peter had exhorted church leadership, he is likewise exhorting younger men here in this text. Peter specifically addresses younger men as younger men are more naturally prone to having more zeal than knowledge to have more energy than they know what to do with and are perhaps more tempted to throw off authority over them and go their own way without showing any deference to the elders that God has placed over them. These words, be subject, as you may remember from previous sermons, are defined as putting yourself in an attitude of submission. These words, be subject, have to do with our attitude, and it's an attitude that we put ourselves in. Peter has already addressed being subject to civic government or being subject in the workplace or within marriage, but now, in the closing of his letter, focuses on being subject to church government or elders at the end of his letter here. This was something that needed to be said then and it still needs to be said today we need this good reminder from God's good word and we need to be reminded that this idea of being subject is good and that it's God's idea and everything that he says is good an attitude of respect honor and submission has largely been lost in our culture due to a failure to respect honor and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. True submission starts with him who is the only authority that there is, who is the authority over all of life. People may pay lip service to Jesus and say, the Lord is my shepherd, but sometimes while we might say that, we can live a life that displays to others that we are our own shepherd. The chief shepherd desires that his flock be ordered under his authority by being subject to his under-shepherds, as displayed in this text. Jesus has given them a fence. He has given the elders a, a fence to protect the sheep's doctrine and practice, to protect their 
beliefs and how they live. And too often people want to tear down the fence without ever learning why the fence was put there in the first place. Both the fence and the shepherds are placed around and over the flock for their good by the chief shepherd to protect, provide, and guide. Thus, to not be subject to the under-shepherds is due to not being subject to the chief shepherd himself or believing that his order in his church is good. This lack of being subject within God's leadership structure in his church is often due to a misunderstanding of what the church is. People often talk about church as something they go to. They say, let's go to church. I've tried to help teach my kids a better understanding of the church by rather saying, let's go gather with the church. Because the church isn't the lumber structure that we gather in. It is the living stones that we are. The assembled body of believers who gather to pray the word is the church, who gather to sing the word, hear the word preached, see the word in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, uh, to see the Lord amongst his people as they follow the one another commands. And all of this under God's appointed overseers in the church. Another misunderstanding of the church is found in the saying, we do church. Maybe you've heard somebody say, we do church at home with our family sometimes. Church is not something that you do. It's something that you are. And it's not something that you get to define. It's defined by God's word. The church is God's gathered people under God's appointed leadership focused on the ministry of the word. And that ministry of the word comes through prayer, singing, preaching, fellowship, observance of the ordinances, and obedience to all that Christ has commanded. You can't subtract elders from the equation and call it church, at least not by any biblical definition. When we misunderstand what the church is, we either ignorantly or willfully show disrespect toward the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. When people disrespect the lordship of Christ over their lives, they inevitably show disrespect, disregard, and indifference to God's authority delegated through various spheres of government which God has established. The deterioration of the culture around the church is partly due to the church having failed to believe and live by the lordship of Christ over all things. It is the church that is to be salt and light in a society. It is the church who is to mirror the Savior, not mirror the society. And as salt in society, we're to preserve respectful speech and conduct, which is in conformity to God's law. As light, we live and proclaim that God's law is good. We don't live as a law unto ourselves. And in living as salt and light in society, it is the fear of the Lord that is to be the beginning of any thought about anything for us. 
when we think about anything in life, we always start with, what has God taught me to believe about this? It takes humility to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. And as Peter is writing, it takes humility for younger men to be subject to the elders. Why do younger men have a hard time being subject to the elders? Perhaps it's because they are characterized by what characterized Peter in his early years as a disciple of Jesus. Under-reliance on Jesus and an overestimation of his own ability. And young men having an under-reliance on Jesus, rather than trusting in Jesus to protect them through trial, they trust in the sword as Peter did when Jesus was arrested. Or rather than in trusting in God's provision for today, they trust that they could speed things along by their own plan. Or rather than trusting in God's guidance through his under-shepherds, they're anxious about the leadership God has placed over them and think they will do better under their own care rather than God's provided care. Also, younger men can be given to an overestimation of their own ability. They overestimate how much knowledge they have or how smart they are or how much theology they know. They overestimate their ability to make wise decisions. They are more easily given to pride rather than humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt them. And they are more easily given to be anxious rather than casting all their anxieties on him demonstrating that they truly believe Jesus cares for them. But we must note here also that the sins of under-reliance on Jesus and overestimation of one's own ability don't fall only on young men. We know that in a fallen world, shepherds can and do sometimes commit the same sins. But this doesn't mean that we abandon what Scripture teaches about elders shepherding sheep and sheep being subject. It just means that we need Jesus' grace in Jesus' church with the commitment of shepherds to flock and flock to shepherds. Where there is a true commitment to the lordship of Christ, you will find a people with a strong commitment to a local church, and its leadership. But where there is a lack of commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you'll see a lack of commitment to a local church and its leadership. As we've read in scripture previous, particularly John 10, one of the characteristics of Jesus' sheep is that they hear his voice and follow him. Too often what we do is we hear his voice and we follow our gut. Or we lean on our own understanding of things, thinking that, well, whatever thought popped into my head immediately must be the right thing, because I only think the right things the first time, every time. You've done that too, huh? <laughs> what we're lacking in those moments is being clothed in humility, which is what our Lord himself was clothed in. If you look at the last half of 1 Peter 5.5, 5, we read these words, 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter moves from addressing specifically younger men to addressing all of you, all y'all. Humility is for all of us. Humility is a mindset. It's the mindset of a servant. It was the mindset of the incarnate Christ, which Paul wrote about in Philippians 2 when he wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, humility is something that happens in the mind. Humility is the mindset of being a servant rather than a master. It's the attitude which gathers with the church to wrap a towel around one's waist and to serve rather than just gathering with the church to get something and leave. Our mindset when we come to, to church is that we gather to serve, not to be served. In Jesus's upside-down kingdom, the least is the greatest, and the greatest is servant of all. I'm sure that Peter could remember the example of Jesus's humility when Jesus took a towel around his waist and washed Peter's feet so many years ago. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There is blessing in not only hearing God's word, but doing it, obeying it. Doing what Jesus has discipled us to do with the mindset that he has exampled for us, the mindset of a humble servant. And we do this because we know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we want grace rather than opposition from God. Peter quotes from Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, which is a reminder to think about how God is going to respond to our actions toward others. We need to think about how God's going to respond to how we treat one another. This same Proverbs is, same proverb, you know, is quoted in the book of James. It was read this morning, which reminds us to watch out for proud, sinful passions. You see, well, what is it that causes quarrels and fights among you? That's because you have the mindset of a master. You think people should bow down to what you want. And if they won't, then you're going to bring some sort of manipulation or force to get them to do it. 
It's because of selfish desires that Christians quarrel with one another and the church. What they lack is submitting themselves, therefore, to God and resisting the devil. They lack humility. They lack a servant's mindset. They are, as James says, friends of the world's system of thinking. The world's system of thinking that prioritizes self over service. They want stuff for self, status for self, and everybody joining in on serving themselves. This mindset not only breeds quarrels, it resists God and it submits to the devil. Rather than submitting to God and resisting the devil. So how do we clothe ourselves with humility toward one another? It starts by looking to Jesus because he's our example. We can only be discipled into humble service to others by looking to the humble servant, Jesus Christ himself. We do this by seeing him in scripture. This also happens in seeing his work in the lives of one another, the humility that Christ produces in other believers. It gives us an example of what it looks like so that we can imitate Christ in others. This idea of lived out humility ties back into chapter 4 and verse, verses 7 through 11 where God exhorted us to be a self-controlled, sober-minded people who pray, who love one another, who seek reconciled relationships with one another, who show hospitality without grumbling and use our serving gifts to serve one another. Humility is lived out in serving one another. As I mentioned earlier in defining humility, we considered Philippians 2.3. Philippians 2.3 is a helpful, succinct definition of humility, I think. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility seeks to serve. Humility seeks to serve God and others rather than to be God and be served by others. Humility was the mindset of Christ. It is a servant's mindset rather than a master's mindset. And humility can be understood in three distinctives. I have three D words here for you if you're writing notes. The three distinctives of humility are Dependence, display, and deflection. It's a dependence on Christ, a display of Christ, and deflection to Christ. Because humility recognizes that we're dependent on Christ. Humility wants to display who Christ is. And if somebody seeks to give the glory to us, we deflect that glory to him who gave us the strength and the gift to be able to serve or do that thing. You notice that there are three Ds, so this is a 3D look at humility. 
first one that we'll elaborate on is humility that's seen in our dependence on Christ. We see this in the humble and dependent example of Jesus and his temptation in Matthew chapter 4. You know, he was tempted to not trust in God's goodness of how it was the Spirit who led him there in the wilderness. It was God who chose to provide him to be fasting rather than eating. But what Jesus did is show his dependence on God by trusting that God was good and how he was choosing to protect him, provide for him, and guide him in that moment. That's the kind of humility that we want to have in any moment of life. Humility is also seen by a dependent trust in God's good character, which is expressed through his commandments. You can see that as you read through Psalm 119. Also in our dependence on Christ, we're a people who invite and we welcome criticism for the sake of our spiritual growth. We recognize that we're dependent on Christ working through the fellowship of the saints for our spiritual growth. Also, in a humble dependence, we see ourselves as having no right to question or pass judgment on God. Humble dependence also trusts that God is sovereign over everything, intending and ordaining good through every circumstance in life. Dependent humility is seeing and being submissive and obedient to God's appointed authorities. It's also found in looking for ways to selflessly serve others with the gifts that he has given to us. We also see humble dependence in God-exalting prayer that is filled with thanksgiving. And it's focused on God's gospel. And it seeks power for Christian living from God alone. Also, humble dependence expresses itself in possessing close edifying friendships humble people have close edifying friendships because they recognize that they not only need a friend but they humbly seek to be a friend as well i have bible verses written next to all of these if you want this list you can uh, email me and see what bible verses i'm referencing the second distinctive of humility is seeing in, in a display of Christ. Humility that displays what his character is like, but it also displays following his teaching. We display a life of humility when we're overwhelmed by God's undeserved grace and goodness. When we are reminded that we deserve hell and anything less than being in hell right now is God's grace. Humility is also seeing and displaying Jesus' gentleness and patience toward others so that people can see the character of God in us and through us. We also display Christ's humility and not seeing ourselves as better than anybody else, but being mindful that it is God who gives us grace to serve, and he also gives us grace which keeps us from being deceived by sin or committing sin. Humility also displays itself in being a good listener. Uh, being a good listener through displaying that you're actually interested in the other person, not just interested in doing some 
conversational jujitsu and all of a sudden they're on their back and they're only hearing stories about you. Humility that displays Christ also only talks about others if it's good or for their good. Humility doesn't seek to share bad news from a bad heart, but wants to speak well of others and for their betterment and for them being built up. Humility also in preferring the interest of others is willing to give up their own rights for the sake of serving others because true freedom is the freedom to lay down yourself for the sake of others. Humility is also seen in being quick to admit when we're wrong, being quick to grant and ask for forgiveness. It's seen in a lifestyle of repentance. It's seen in minimizing somebody else's sin in comparison to our own. So we look at somebody else's sin, we say, well, that's a speck, but I have a beam. Also, humility has the ability to be glad for others. Like, I'm glad that you had $80,000 to buy that truck. Like, I don't, I don't covet it. I'm glad for you that you got that. Praise the Lord. Humility is also seeing and being used for the interest of others and giving glory to God in that particular thing. The third distinctive is seen in deflecting glory to Christ because the glory is due to him alone. We want to give glory to God's work in us and through us. Uh, it's, if there's anything good that comes out of us, it's because of him. So when people say, you know, thank you for this. Tell him, thank God <laughs> for that. Uh, he's the one who gave me the, the strength. He gave me the ability. It's him who is at work in doing that thing that happened. Humility is thankful to God. That's how we deflect glory to him. We want thanks to go to him in all circumstances. We recognize that any gifts or abilities come from him. And we don't uh, bemoan or exaggerate our gifts or abilities. Uh, we don't think, well, if only I had that gift that that other person has. I always say, well, I have that other person as another person who's in the family of God, and therefore I have that gift and can enjoy it that way. I'm glad that they can do that and don't have a self-righteous, self-pity that thinks, well, if only I was like that. But rather, the gift should build us up and edify one another should not cause us to pity ourselves, but to encourage us to follow Christ together, to look for ways to selflessly serve one another, uh, to be uh, humble, honest people who are open about the fact that we do still need spiritual growth. And also this humility and deflecting glory to Christ is seen in having humility in our doctrine, humility in the teaching that we know, uh, being thankful when somebody would criticize us or seek to reprove us, I mean, in a, in a right sort of way, a humble criticism. But even if the criticism comes to you sinfully and they're yelling at you and they're angry, you still consider it in humility. Say, you know, even though they're sinning and how they're giving me the criticism, maybe there's some, something accurate to the criticism that I need to consider. 
Humility is displayed in having a teachable spirit like that. So the 3D look at humility is seen in having a humble dependence on Christ, a humble display of his character and teaching, and being a person who wants to deflect glory to Christ. And all of this, you think that's a big list, that's a lot of stuff to remember. Can you just sum it up in one thing? It's summed up in this, just having the mindset of a servant. And then that fruit comes out from that. And this humility, as you know, is often grown in us when we are placed in trying circumstances. Humility is developed in trials because it's in those trials that we are reminded of our dependence on Christ, that we see a growing display of him and a reminder to give glory to him for his work in our lives. This is something that Peter has already addressed in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you read this text, you see Peter is saying, you, you're being grieved by various trials, but you're also rejoicing. Well, that was a fruit of humility because they're seeing that God is testing their faith to show them that their faith is legitimate. He's also purifying their faith that they would be more Christ-like, and all of that leads back to giving God glory for his work in us and through us. Humility rejoices in trials because it recognizes also those trials are from God's hand. And also that deliverance will be from his hand also. He cares about the trials he gives to us, and he cares about the deliverance that he's going to bring to us from them as well. So how do we respond to those trials? We're turning to chapter 5 and verse 6. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now when you read this verse, who is it that's doing the humbling? It's God that's doing it. It's his hand that is bringing about the humbling. So I think of some examples of this in Scripture think of the nation of Israel. Before Israel even existed as a nation who was enslaved in Egypt, this is what God told Abraham. He said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now these afflictions that the Israelites would endure were just as much a part of God's plan as the deliverance of his mighty hand that you also read about in the book of Exodus in which he delivered them out of Egypt into a better slavery unto him with mighty signs and wonders. Doubtless you probably think also of Job. You might remember in Job 1.8 where it was 
the Lord who said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. You see in reading that text that Job's suffering and salvation was God's idea. God refined in Job a dependence and a doxology which declares, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. How does God humble us? Well, we've answered that question already, and it's through trials. It's through various trials. In Peter, we read about it, trials that come from human institutions, in the workplace, in marriage, uh, from other people who insult you or exclude you. They can come through uh, the death of a loved one. They can come through sickness. It comes through various types of trials. But we have to remember that the world that we live in isn't running by impersonal chance. It's being ran by a personal, sovereign God. God isn't just sitting back and allowing things to happen. He's ordaining everything that's happening according to the counsel of his will. If he wasn't doing that and was just sitting back and allowing things to happen, we would have much reason to despair. But because we know that every trial and circumstance is from his wise and good hand, we can be comforted amidst our suffering. We know that our Redeemer lives. And as Job said, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. The God who walks us through the wilderness will walk us into the promised land. The God who brings us down into the valley will raise that valley to a level ground where there's clear sight of his glory. And as Isaiah writes, And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And later in Isaiah 40, the prophet writes, But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God brings us through humiliation on the way to exaltation. And the purpose of being humbled is so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Down is the way up in the upside down kingdom. The valley is the place of vision. Now we know that when we're in the valley and in the trial, anxious feelings seem so natural. But when we have a reminder that it's trials that are good gifts from a good God, as James 1 teaches us, we are given a peace which surpasses understanding, a peace which is perplexing to other people as they're watching us suffer through something. It just doesn't make sense to have peace in times like that. But it does make sense because we know 
that God cares. And that's how we're humbled. This is how we humble ourselves under God's humbling hand. It's by casting our anxiety on the God who cares. And this is done in prayer. Right? As we think about the opposite of humility, which is pride, pride is something that stifles that prayer happening. Pride stifles overcoming the anxiety. We get so focused on looking at ourselves and our circumstances that we forget to look up. We look inward and outward, but we don't look upward. Pride tends to trust self to work things out somehow. Pride thinks, well, somehow I can figure it out or sort it out or take care of this. Uh, pride deceives self in thinking that you can come up with some way to protect yourself or provide for yourself or guide yourself through this or out of this. Now, when you're in the moment of thinking that way, you often don't think about it like that because you're self-deceived. But one of the ways that you can discern this about yourself is a lack of prayer in your life. Prayerlessness is a fruit of self-sufficient pride. It forgets that God cares, and it goes about living to seek your own kingdom and your own righteousness first rather than his. You may recall how in the greatest sermon ever preached, which is found in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus, after he taught his disciples to pray, also said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Knowing such truth leads us not to be anxious, but to pray. To not trust ourselves, but to trust him pray to God and to trust him to answer according to his perfect wisdom and to do that in his perfect timing as well, which is according to his perfect plan and in remembrance that he cares. He cares. Therefore, we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded about these things for the sake of our praying. As Peter wrote in 4.7, 
an idea which he also expands in chapter 5, verse 8, where he writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Prayer, again, is assumed here. Sober-minded people pray. Watchful people pray. Humble people pray. I'd encourage you to look back through the whole letter of 1 Peter and see how much he brings up prayer throughout the whole letter. Also to read through the book of Acts and to just look at the example of Peter's life and how much people prayed, how much he prayed. It's like prison, prayer, prison, prayer. There's other things that happen too. There's more than that. But humility makes a sober assessment of one's enemy and one's weakness to fall prey to that enemy. Now think about the first man, Adam. Adam was the most intelligent man who ever lived. His mind wasn't affected by sin like ours is. And he fell prey to the devil's lies over God's truth. The devil knows what scripture says better than you do. He just hates it and he twists it. He seeks to destroy God's word and God's works. You know how he twisted the intention of God's word, both in the temptation of the first Adam and the last Adam. But as we think about the temptation of the last Adam, that is Jesus, we see that there is a victory over the wages of sin. There's victory in Jesus. There is resurrection. There is righteousness. There is a new way of life in him. Paul, writing on this concept in Romans 5, says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We inherited both the guilt of sin and its corruption over our lives from Adam. But in Jesus Christ, all those who trust in him, we have a canceling of that guilt and power over the slavery to that sin. Jesus overcame the temptations of Satan in our place. In that moment of temptation, he was living out the righteousness that God's law requires in our place. Jesus obeyed the law in our place so that we could be counted as righteous before God in him. Jesus breaks the guilt and power of sin for all who trust in him. And he gives us the power to overcome temptation to sin amidst suffering in Jesus because of his victory. This is a truth that Martin Luther helps us to sing from time to time in the lyrics that he penned in A Mighty Fortress. 
For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. We may be tempted to think that our adversary is the people who insult us or exclude us because of our desire to live a godly life in the present age. But notice what the text says. It says, your adversary, the devil. The devil is your adversary. But those who have been taken captive by him to do his will are the mission field. Paul writes with this sort of mentality in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We need to be careful to maintain this kind of missionary mindset toward those who are lost, those who do not know Christ, and to have a desire that they would come to know him and recognizing that it's by God's grace alone that that can happen. He, he has to grant them repentance, but we have the privilege to call them to that repentance in Christ alone. We do indeed have a great foe, but we have an even greater God. Sometimes we mistakenly think about the devil as being one of the voices in our head. The devil is not in your head. It's just you. You're the only one in your head. God is the only one who has access to those thoughts. He's greater than the devil. Some mistakenly also assume that the devil is everywhere present. He's all over the, the planet, tempting people all the time, particularly you, because you're just so much more important than all these other people. But we need to recognize that the devil is a created being. He can only be in one place at a time. Only God is everywhere present. The devil is God's devil. We see that especially in the book of Job, I think, very clearly. Though Job saw nothing of what was going on in the heavenly council and the conversation between God and the devil. God's devil is on a leash. He's limited in what he can do by his creator. The devil is a counterfeit. He tries to counterfeit all of these things that we've talked about. He tries to counterfeit God's being all-knowing and everywhere present. And he presents himself, as scripture says, as an angel of light. There's much to be said about the topic of the devil. But for the sake of time, we must go on to verse 9 
which says, but resist him. Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We resist the devil by being firm in our faith, by being active in our faith. It's not by focusing on him, but by focusing on God. Resistance is built by being firm in your faith, by knowing God's truth and standing on God's truth, by hearing it and doing it, and being in fellowship where you can be encouraged by saints who are also suffering, to consider saints of the past, to consider saints of our present day who are suffering for the sake of Christ. We remember the fellowship of suffering with the universal church, and that's part of what builds our resistance. It also reminds us that we're not isolated in our suffering. Uh, we're not alone in our suffering. We have fellowship in our suffering with Christ and with his people whom he cares for. Also, it reminds us that our suffering isn't unique. Other Christians are suffering in the same way. Being reminded that we suffer with the brotherhood throughout the world also reminds us that our suffering isn't in vain. God is doing something through it. All things must work together for your salvation. You see this even when you read through the book of Acts and follow Peter's own life. As he would proclaim Christ, be imprisoned, and then be back out of prison, still proclaiming Christ, and see people, see proclamation, prison, prayer. Proclamation, prison, prayer. And it goes on and on that there was an encouragement of the fellowship of the saints amidst that to strengthen them in proclaiming Christ together. Concerning men who are alive today that have been an encouragement to us, we've discussed the Canadian pastor James Coates and his imprisonment simply for obeying Christ's command to gather the flock and to preach the word. And for my friend and a fellow pastor of his, Jacob Spence, who carried on in that task despite people from the world protesting their church, uh, despite the police turning against their God-ordained role and fencing off their building and them from using it, uh, he was strengthened in prison by fellow saints writing letters to them uh, by suffering with other fellow pastors who went through similar things as well. And we're strengthened by the examples of such men who endure the ostracism of the world and the various things that come in suffering for Christ. We're strengthened in the fellowship of the brotherhood of the universal church. In verses 10 and 11, there's a focus on God's grace. God is referred to as the God of all grace. The text reads, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion 
forever and ever. Amen. God has called you to his eternal glory, and Christ has not only called you to it, he's going to make sure that you're going to be there as well. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He promises, because all dominion is to him. We don't see everything in subjection to him now, but we will. We've read the end of the book. We know how it ends. Everything in subjection to Jesus Christ. Many of these truths that we have meditated upon and going through this text are summed up in a Puritan prayer, which comes at the beginning of a collection of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision, a book which you ought to own. If you don't have one, let somebody know. They'll get you one for Christmas, maybe. The Valley of Vision. Here's one of the prayers from that that I'll read in closing. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in in my valley. Let's pray together as the music team comes forward to lead us in song. Our gracious Lord, we pray that we would hear this word of yours about humility and that you would help us to live in it, that you would develop a greater humility in us from having heard this sermon that this message would not be compartmentalized to this moment, but it would be repeated through the mouths and lives of your people as we scatter from this place to display you to a lost world. Help us to strengthen one another in this Christ-like humility by living out the Christ-like humility. Help us to grow, especially, Lord, in prayer, not thinking of our lack of prayer, but thinking of the privilege of it that we have to humbly come before you to pray with one another, to pray corporately, to pray humbly as we work through trials together. Because often we don't know what to say to one another in those trials, but at least we know who to talk to. And we thank you that you hear us and that you help us. Amen.
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.